The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five going for three. Stocks trying to keep the rally going after Wall Street's best day since March. Down but not out. While Wild Week for Big Tech has not deterred one analyst, he tells clients to double down for the long haul. We'll get his names ahead. A massive media merger, AT&T may dump its TV business and merge it with Discovery in a deal that would be the biggest media combination in years. Mideast tensions rising, Israel running up against mounting international pressure and calls for a ceasefire as its conflict with Hamas hits critical new heights. Too little, too late? Well, thanks a lot, Elon Musk trying to calm investor nerves after one of his tweets sent the price of Bitcoin tumbling. It is Monday, May 17th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan, and happy tax day. Reminder, today is the new deadline this year to file your taxes, of course, pushed back by the lockdowns from the April 15th normal date to today. Get those taxes Filed. Well, on that happy note, here's how your money in the global markets are setting up their day and their week. Futures eh, are down just a bit. We're coming off to a strong end of the week last week, but that is not reflected in futures, at least right now. Volume is a little thin. A lot of time this morning. Let's see what happens. See fair value on the NASDAQ is in the green. The S&B, NASDAQ, and Russell all coming off their best single-day rallies since all the way back in March. And is it sell in May and go away? Well, not so much, at least for the Dow. The Dow 30 is rather quietly up 1.5% this month. Tech and the S&P, yeah, they are slightly down, but big name so-called value stocks, cyclicals, they are on the rise. In part because inflation talk is all the rage. So bond yields, of course, they are in focus. And the benchmark 10-year yield, not doing much. At 1.61%, even as stocks have moved, bond yields have not. And that is very curious. And of course, in the fast and ever-changing world of crypto, there is a lot of red on the screen this morning. Get more on that about Elon Musk. Bitcoin is down right now, but overall, it's been strong. Ethereum is up 32% this month and has doubled in the last 90 days. As we said, a wild week for Bitcoin. It's at 45286 right now. Bitcoin was at 61,000 just a couple of weeks ago. Been very, very volatile in the cryptos lately. All right, we're going to get much more on all that coming up in just a few minutes. But right now, let's get more on your money ahead and get more now on that possible massive media deal that could unwind years of spending by AT&T and basically send CNN to the Discovery Channel. With that and more, here is Contessa Brew with some of your top stories on this Monday. Good morning, Tessa. Hi there, Brian. Are you ready to follow all this? AT&T is in advanced talks to merge with Warner Media, 
with Discovery in a deal that would better position the combined company against competitors like Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Sources tell CNBC a deal could be announced as soon as today, although talks aren't final and, of course, a deal could still fall apart. No comment from either company this morning. You can see, though, look at Discovery stock up almost 13 percent. Wells Fargo banking analyst Mike Mayo making headlines this morning, telling the Financial Times U.S. banks stand to cut as many as 200,000 jobs or 10 percent of the industry's workforce over the next 10 years as they look to increase profitability and address changing consumer behavior. Mayo says it could be the biggest headcount reduction in U.S. banking history, with call center and branch jobs most at risk. And billionaire George Soros investment firm Soros Fund Management reports it bought up shares of Viacom, CBS, Discovery and Baidu as they were being sold off in massive blocks during the Arcogos capital collapse. Reports indicate the film, uh, the firm rather, did not hold any positions in those stocks before the meltdown. Brian? Yeah, the big news, though, Contessa, is that all of Warner Media, which was years were and tens of billions were spent building it up, could now be effectively sort of cast off to the Discovery Channel. Massive. A lot, a lot of changes going on in the media space. Yeah, and, and George Soros apparently was a buyer. Kind of an amazing uh, Media Monday, I guess we should say. Contessa Brewer, we'll see you back in a few minutes. Contessa, thank you very much. Okay. All right, now let's get back to the markets and your money, which are coming off really one of the wildest weeks of the year. I mean, early last week, it looked like it was grim. The S&P 500 dropped as much as 4%. Big, bold headlines. But guess what? Then we bounced back starting Thursday, put in back-to-back rallies to end the week, and ended up just off about 1.5%. So what exactly is going on? Why the newfound volatility? Joining us, Michael Sheldon, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. I mean, yesterday was like all the year in a, in a week, I guess I should say. What happened? Why the increase in volatility? Was it all just inflation fears or something else? Well, good morning, Brian. Um, I think what's going on right now is the markets are, are on inflation alert right now. You've seen massive rallies in things from like copper, steel, lumber, across of just a variety of different types of commodities. And really, this is the first time in, in several decades that we've actually had these issues. But I think if you step back a little bit, if you look at financial conditions, for example, we look at a lot of different things. We look at credit spreads. We look at earnings per share revisions. The LEI, leading economic indicator, is coming out this week. All of those remain supportive right now. So we think we're in still in the early sort of middle cycle of this economic uh, recovery, which probably has hopefully several years to go. So we are going through a little bit of volatility, and that could be expected as we can maybe go into the summertime. Yeah, you know, and I feel like, though, with all due respect to all the hardworking and smart members of the Fed, they're making Alan Greenspan look easy to understand right now, Michael. I mean, honestly... Every day we get comments from somebody in the Fed and even even the smartest minds on the on the street that I talk to are saying we don't know what's going on. And nobody has any idea what transitory means, how long it could be. Nobody believes it. Do you think inflation is here to stay? And when I say to stay, Michael, I mean, for the next few years, not forever. Right now, we're in we're in the Powell camp right now. And the main reason for that, the Powell camp really thinks that inflation is likely to be somewhat transitory. And there there are two big reasons for that. One is at some point in the next probably six to 12 months, we're going to hit peak growth 
and peak profits. And once you hit that, we like we think that inflation is going to start to cool down from some of the levels we've seen recently. Also, as the economy continues to open up, um, the other thing is that we look at the the powerful D's. We call them the three D's: debt, demographics, and disruptive technology. Those three forces have helped kept keep uh, inflation in check over the past yeah. several years. And those are going to be very powerful forces to displace. So we do recognize that inflationary pressures are really are, are rising right now because of the reopening. There's a yeah. positive cocktail of policy between accommodative monetary policy and fiscal stimulus along with the vaccine. But we think some of those trends will start to reduce themselves uh, as we go through the next several months. So so what do we do? What, what, are we, what are we buying right now? What are we owning? What are we selling? Well, the important thing about this year is over the past several years, it's really been mainly all about technology. But this year, we're seeing a, a broader economic recovery. You're seeing more participation across various sectors of the market. So I think you want to have somewhat of a barbell. We're not giving up on technology, for example, because you need to have some growth in your portfolio. But we like other things like industrials, uh, we like healthcare, which has been a little out of favor. That's sort of our GARP or growth at a reasonable price. And we even think that that foreign stocks, which have really been out of favor for the past decade or so, are poised to turn around. We think there's maybe an inflection point ahead as uh, they're behind us in the economic cycle, but they should start to improve somewhat over the next year or two. Michael Sheldon, RDM Financial, in the Powell camp for now, but I'm sure this inflation debate, Michael, is not going away anytime soon. We appreciate you coming on and kicking off the week for us, Mike. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, you're welcome. Well, how excited are you to get back out there, get back on a plane, get back to a stadium for live sports, maybe a rock concert? Well, it's happening and fast and not just here. Today in the U.K., nearly everything is reopening after one of the harshest and hardest lockdowns in the world. And air travel is back in a big way, but maybe not for the American flyer. Let's talk more about all of this. We have full team coverage on kind of a new day in the UK. Juliana Tottlebaum in central London and Steve Sedgwick wearing some kind of fluorescent vest at Gatwick Airport. Steve, I'm kidding. I know you're on the tarmac. You got to wear it, my friend. Uh, How excited are you and I to get back to Vienna someday you know, have a bratwurst or whatever at an OPEC meeting. Talk to us about how travel is really starting to reopen. Yeah, Brian, can you imagine just being in amidst the crowd like we were in the OPEC scrum, some of those? Yeah, that's still a long way off at the moment. But yeah, you're absolutely right in your introduction, Brian. This is a good day as well. Um, We've got travel here at Gatwick. I've been out on the runway. I've seen a uh, couple of planes taking off. The first plane uh, to Portugal, which is one of the 12 countries on the green list of countries, which means no quarantine when you get back to the UK. But at the moment, it's very, very limited, the number of countries on that green list. And the amber list, well, it's it's huge. It's most countries uh, in the world, which if you fly to, including the US, and come back to London, you have to uh, quarantine for 10 days thereafter, or five if you get an early test as well. So what the airline industry wants and what the US airline industry is also uh, crying out for uh, is more countries to move from the amber list, where you have quarantine, to the green list, where you don't have quarantine, but you do have some strenuous testing and passenger locator forms as well. Pete Buttigieg and Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary in the US uh, and indeed in the UK, they are, are talking already about possible opening up those transatlantic routes because the likes of United Airlines, uh, American Airlines, Virgin, British Airways, they are desperate for those very lucrative transatlantic routes to open up in some meaningful fashion. But this is a really good day and it's just great to be out and about and seeing passengers getting back on planes again, Sally. 
Okay, talk to us a little more, Steve, about that that 12-country thing. I'm in the States. I want to come see you. Maybe I can. Maybe I can't. We're sort of got our bubble countries now. I mean, who's in the bubble, and when are they going to open up the bubble or, or pop the bubble? Yeah, this is the slight problem at the moment. Okay, the 12 countries includes, for instance, New Zealand and Australia, who won't let us in. They just said, no, you may be able to travel to, you think you can travel to us and go back in, but we're not letting you in. So there's a couple off the list for a start as well. Iceland's on there. That's a great country to go to. I went there during the last financial crisis. Uh, Gibraltar, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar, you can go and see that at the southern tip of Spain. Portugal, that's the only feasible holiday destination because the other list of countries, well, some of your viewers will know where South Georgia and the Falklands are from what the Brits did in 1981. Uh, and that is just not feasible as well. The Faroe Islands, St. Helena, there are no real trips uh, from British um, uh, travellers and uh, holidaymakers to those kind of places. So the real list at the moment is very, very limited. But I think this is pretty much a trial period. There is a hope that some of the Greek islands, the Spanish islands will get on the list as soon as three weeks time, Sully. Wow. Very interesting stuff. Open it up. And yeah, I don't know when 600 of us, Steve, are going to be packed in a stairwell in the basement of OPEC's headquarters again. But I tell you what, (laughs) I look forward to seeing you again, Steve. Thank you. He even looks good, even with the vest on. All right, now let's send it over to Juliana Tottlebaum, who I'm told is about to get a cup of espresso or cappuccino. There must be an angle to the story other than just your culinary delights, Juliana. (laughs) Well, Brian, I have to confess, I've already had two cappuccinos today. I might move on to the fresh mozzarella that they're making behind me here. I'm in central London, and I'm here today because this is another milestone for the U.K. Steve was talking about the resumption of international travel, which starts today. The other big thing that changes here from today is the resumption of indoor dining. It's the first time since December of last year that we'll be able to eat indoors. So a huge moment for pubs and restaurants. Clearly, the hospitality sector has been hit very hard by the pandemic. Research suggests that in the U.K., one in ten restaurants has closed permanently since the pandemic began. So the pubs and restaurants are certainly happy that today has finally arrived. But it's still going to be a difficult journey ahead in terms of profitability and being able to operate in a profitable way. Tables must be spaced apart. Uh, We are also looking at a maximum of six people per table, a maximum of two households per table. So it's by no means a clear path forward for the hospitality industry. We're also looking at an absence of international tourists at this stage. And we'll just add that looming over today, as much of a milestone as it is, there are concerns around rising cases of the variant from India here in the UK. So one of the big questions is, now that you're able to eat indoors, will people actually want to do it? So that question remains open, Brian. All right, I'm going to close the question right now, Juliana. I mean, there's no question. The answer is a thousand percent yes. And I say that not from some random opinion, But for somebody who has traveled extensively during the pandemic across the United States, I can assure you, people, the restaurants you are in, you are seeing, Juliana, will be full probably tonight with vaccinated people because they've been told if you're vaccinated, you're safe. You're also answering our question. You have a mask on, obviously. I would imagine you're being required to do that. Most American states, a lot of them aren't requiring masks at all in certain situations. Some still are. What are the masking requirements that you guys will face? Is it wear it in when you sit down, you take it off? What's the what's the UK policy and what has become really a kind of a, oh, we lost Julie. Oh, I'm just talking into the ether. Okay. Juliana, if you can hear me, thank you. Apparently we lost your feed, but uh, we'll get you back on maybe again tomorrow as well and see exactly how the UK is doing it. 
versus the U.S. Julian and Steve, thank you both very much. I guarantee you, folks, uh, if you're in the U.K. watching those restaurants, they will be full. If not, send me the bill. All right. Don't do that. <laughs> send it in dollars. We are just getting started. And when we come back on this very busy Monday, much more on this possible massive media deal. The man who helped break the news, Alex Sherman of CNBC, will join us on that. Plus, from ransomware to Middle East tensions to oil under siege from all directions, will prices just continue to move higher? We'll talk more about that as well. Dow futures down 55. And we are back with more right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome back. Let's get you more on something we were just talking about with Juliana and sort of the updated mask guidance that is spreading around the country and maybe confusing a lot of people. All right, two more big-name stores want to welcome you back and... See you smile. Walmart and Costco are the latest to say that fully vaccinated customers do not need to wear a mask in their stores unless they're required to by state or local laws. Walmart now also says fully vaccinated employees can also pass on the mask. Again, subject to local laws. Also, some updates from Starbucks and Disney. Starbucks dropping its mask requirements for, of course, vaccinated customers starting today. Staff, though, must keep them on for now. And Disney making masks optional in common outdoor areas while still requiring them for indoors. Again, the ever-changing rules, state, local laws, everything's very different. A lot of people are confused. We're going to bring you up to date always on how businesses are evolving with the guidance. All right, up next, how Elon Musk may have just wiped out tens of billions of dollars from all you Bitcoin owners. Needless to say, the crypto world is not happy with the Tesla founder right now. We'll tell you why after this. Today's big number, $11.1 billion. That's the total U.S. commercial gaming revenue for the first quarter of 2021, according to the American Gaming Association, matching the highest grossing quarter ever. That's up 4% from Q1 2019 as Americans return to casinos and sports betting boosts revenue. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome or welcome back. We have got a big week on tap. All right, here's your calendar for the week. We're set, We're always on WEX setting you up, okay? The NAHB, that's a housing index. It matters. It's our RBI today. You're going to want to hear it. Tuesday, you got earnings. You got housing starts as well. 
On Wednesday, more earnings, TJ Maxx, Target Lowe's. You got the FOMC minutes. Thursday, earnings out of Kohl's. Also, Philadelphia Fed number as well. And then on Friday, more on housing, existing home sales, and John Deere's earnings. There's your week ahead. Dow futures down 62. Bitcoin at 45,000. Ouch. We're back right after this. Sell in May and go away. Maybe or maybe not. Why stocks may be telling two different stories at the same time. The deadliest day in years is fighting between Israel and Hamas heating up over the weekend. We'll give you the very latest. Rachel Ross, Animal Planet? Warner Media, CNN, and Discovery may merge in the biggest media deal in years. They take on Netflix and Disney. We'll tell you about it on this Monday, May 17th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back. 527 here on the East Coast. That would be a big, big deal if it happens. We'll get you more on it in just a minute. But for now, here's how your money and the markets are looking right now as we are just about halfway through this 5 a.m. hour. Futures, they are down very, very fractionally, a little bit in the red, off 53, but fair value on the NASDAQ is higher. We're not going to call it flat, but it's close. And don't look now, but the NASDAQ is on a four-week losing streak. That's right, four-week losing streak. That is the first time that has happened for the first time in nearly two years, even going back to the full time of the pandemic last year. Now, last week, crazy volatility. If you sort of checked out and didn't pay attention, I don't blame you. Here's how it went down. You had a big drop on Monday on the NASDAQ, 350. For the Dow, it's not a lot. For the NASDAQ, that's a big number. Tuesday, kind of caught our breath, down 12 points. Another big leg down on Wednesday, down 358. Thursday, we came back and started week, came back in the afternoon, and then a huge pop on Friday. If you're not good at doing math at this hour, we did end the weekend down, but a nice big comeback and some momentum to end the week as well. Totaling it all up, in the end, NASDAQ dead end down more than 2% on the week. Just something to watch. Well, let's talk more about this and where you really want to be in technology, joining us is tech analyst Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, and now with a new note on exactly what we want to own. Dan, it's great to have you on, important to have you on right now, because there's a lot of confusion. I mean, if you just own the, the QQQ, you're probably getting some companies and some stocks you don't want to own right now as work from home fades away. Where do we want to be invested right now? Yeah, and Brian, I think you can't paint all with the same brush. I think there's areas of tech and cloud and cybersecurity that, that are actually going to see acceleration. And I think those are some of the areas that, that we're hand-holding investors to really double down on here. And we continue to be bullish on our multi-year thesis in tech. It's obviously been a painful rotation, but I think specifically some of these subsectors, cybersecurity, cloud, golden buying opportunities, despite the white knuckles, in our opinion. All right, you call it the white knuckle trade because you got to kind of maybe, maybe it's like Bitcoin, right? Hodl at this point, hold on for, for dear life in certain parts. But you think the biggest of the big names, the Apples of the world, the Microsofts, I know they're big. I know they're kind of boring in some ways, but you still believe that's where we want to be invested in tech. Look, on large cap, I can tell you 20 plus years covering tech, we've never seen some of these trends transformational today. I look at Microsoft. 
the core cloud play. I think that continues to be names where numbers go higher as well as re-rating 300-hour plus stock. And I look at Apple, and this is one not just in the services business, but in an elongated super cycle as it plays out. No doubt right now. I mean, the haters are hating. Skeptics are out there thinking best in the rearview mirror. And they continue to prove it out in the 5G cycle. And you, and you put this all in a bow. I look at tech right now, and you can't just look at it as just high momentum, multiple names, compressing inflation. There's some subsectors and names. I think we look back right now, 12, 18 months of you, this is really the golden opportunity to own some of these secular winners. Really? Where, where, who are they? What are they? Aside from you said the big name, big caps, you mentioned those, Dan. Who else? Well, cybersecurity. I love names like Telos, federal cybersecurity play. Look what's happened, Colonial and SolarWinds hack. You look at names like Zscaler. That's another one that sticks out. SailPoint on cybersecurity. And then I look at cloud. There's names like Pega. And remember, these are Garpy names, not necessarily high multiple names. I think it's a basket that continues to be the way to play this. You want some of the high multiple names, but then there's some of these garb names that continue to go higher as well as, well as M&A. I believe we're going to see a surge of M&A, both strategic and financial wow. across software. Well, and, and, and maybe in media, given one of our top stories, but some names that you like, Zscaler, tell us some new names. Stay with the big cap. Ride the white knuckle trade. Dan Ives, we appreciate you coming on. Worldwide Exchange. Thanks, Thank buddy. We'll see you soon. All right. Now let's get to some of this morning's other top headlines, including a big potential change for Twitter and more headlines around the ongoing Bill Gates saga. Contessa Brewer is back with that. Contessa. Hi, Brian. Uh, well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting this morning that Microsoft's board of directors in 2020 decided that Bill Gates should step down from his leadership role at the company as they looked into his prior romantic relationship with a female employee that was deemed inappropriate. Gates had resigned from his director role before the investigation was complete and the board could take action. A spokeswoman for Gates responded to the report, saying the affair ended amicably nearly 20 years ago and that his decision to leave the board was in no way related to this matter. Elon Musk is trying to put a Band-Aid on Bitcoin. He says in a tweet this morning that uh, his company, Tesla, has not sold off any of its Bitcoin position. This is after he implied on Twitter Sunday that Tesla did, in fact, sell some of its crypto holdings. The news sent the prices of assets from Bitcoin to Dogecoin sinking right now. Look at you can see it's down almost a percent. This is a rough ride if you're into uh, cryptocurrencies. And new reports this morning, the upcoming Twitter subscription service will be called Twitter Blue and cost about three bucks a month. Still unclear when that service will be rolled out, but the company has tested new features like undoing tweets and ad-free scrolling. Twitter shares down about, oh, half a percent or so in extended trading. Undo tweets, Brian. Can you imagine how much trouble people could avoid with just a little click of undo tweets? <laughs> but is not also called delete tweet, which, exi- I mean, what's what's the difference between undo and a delete? No. It's a real question. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but if you... I don't know, but here's what would be the advantage if you could do this. If you can undo your tweet and then undo it from where other people have retweeted you or whatever, if it just dis- disappears, which previously oh. didn't happen. If somebody else saw it and captured it, there there you go. You were lost. I think there's a way to uh, do a f- it. Or to edit tweet. You can't go back and re-edit your tweet. 
Well, that's dumb. The fact they don't have an edit tweet button. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you, you end up with the wrong word by accident because you're, you know, yelling at the kids on the side. It's ridiculous. But everybody can just screenshot everything I anyway, I guess. So, right? True that. Yep. Um, so um, we're just, I was hey, hoping you would talk so I could have together. a sip of coffee there, Contessa. <laughs> look at you with the Yeti. Look at, look at us. How fancy we are with our two Yetis. Contessa, and we'll put our pinky the in the air as we this. sip our coffee in the morning. Contessa Brewer, thank Have you. Have a good morning. All right. It does keep it, not, not a commercial for Yeti, but it does keep it warm. All right. Now to a much more serious story and a major developing one this morning as Israel hit Gaza with a new heavy round of airstrikes late yesterday. The intense air attacks follow the deadliest day yet in the escalating violence between Israel and Hamas. More than 40 Palestinians were killed on Sunday as Israel continues to target sites in Gaza. Hamas continuing its rocket attacks on Israel. NBC's Richard Engel reports from Tel Aviv. Israeli airstrikes flattened three apartment buildings in Gaza City. There aren't rescue crews to speak of in Gaza. So when the poorly equipped teams arrived, they had to dig for survivors however they could. They pulled dozens out still alive, trapped in the rubble for hours. But they found more than 40 dead, including, health officials say, two dozen women and children. According to Muslim tradition, they were buried almost immediately. This funeral for 17 members of a single family. Nadine Abdullatif is just 10 years old. There's a lot of people who died here, not only here, out there more places in Gaza and Palestine died. Kids are dying. Mothers cry for their kids who died. Kids can cry every time because their parents died. Israel said it was attacking Hamas military infrastructure beneath the road near the buildings, which caused them to collapse and led to unintended casualties. Israel says it's destroying Hamas intelligence, tunnels, and targeting the group's leaders. But the rockets, more than 3,000 this week, are still flying. Hamas said these were revenge for the death of women and children. In Ashdod, south of Tel Aviv, Doreen McKaylee, a student, showed me her apartment, hit by a rocket that slipped through Israel's missile defense system. Looks like a normal room, but has this heavy metal door. Air raid sirens gave her 40 seconds to run to a reinforced room in her home, a requirement in Israeli buildings. I sat in the shelter and I was like, please, 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 nobody gets hurt. And it's not just rockets. Israeli police said a Palestinian rammed into a checkpoint in Jerusalem, moderately injuring four policemen. The attacker was shot dead. In Israel, many support the military campaign against Gaza as self-defense. In Gaza, many support the rocket attacks for the same reason, a cycle of violence that risks further escalation. Richard Engel, NBC News, Tel Aviv. And our thanks to Richard Engel in Tel Aviv. All right, in the meantime, that crisis in Israel, just one global choke point for energy markets. You've got other regional tensions in the Middle East, like rockets from Yemen into Saudi Arabia, as well as the lasting impact from the colonial pipeline outage here at home. And as huge new production cuts continue to decline in the United States, just no money going in to new fields. Let's kind of tie it all together and bring in 
Vortexa Managing Director of Oil, Clay Siegel. Clay, it's good to have you on. Obviously, we hope that what's happening in Israel does dial back. There's a lot of pain, certainly, on both sides there as well. What does that, and, and everything else, that's gone on as well. I mentioned Yemen, Saudi Arabia. You've also got the UAE kind of quietly reaching out to Israel as well. What does all this mean for oil production, prices, storage, inventories, etc.? Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. I think that uh, we have to be concerned about the proliferation of these attacks where oil assets and gas assets are increasingly under fire. Now, what you saw last week was actually uh, deliberate targeting of a couple of oil assets in, in Israel. The first one you probably heard about was an oil tank, a storage tank in the Ashkelon area that was hit by a, a Hamas rocket and, uh, and burned. And, um, and then offshore with one of their gas platforms, the Tamar gas platform, it's a good thing actually that the energy ministry ordered uh, Chevron to, uh, to take that platform down as a preemptive measure, protective measure, and to drain the fuel. Because sure enough, it also came under attack, both by rockets and apparently also by some kind of uh, unmanned vehicle that may have been carrying an explosive payload. It's interesting because normally when these Arab-Israeli uh, conflagrations flare up from time to time, oil and gas usually don't get pulled into the fray. So to see two different assets get deliberately targeted in the space of a week, I, I think it's concerning. Yeah, and we learned a lot about inventories and talked a lot about them, obviously, with Colonial Pipeline and that huge scare last week. Certainly, Clay, I mean, where I imagine we drained a lot of inventory, especially in refined products, not just crude oil, obviously. It's more like gasoline and things that we used. You guys track offshore storage, ships. Ships are starting to move around the world. Where do we stand with inventories right now as you see them? Inventories are still relatively plentiful around the world. Uh, what we saw last week, I think, in response to the Colonial Pipeline episode was a pretty efficient response, both by industry and government together. So first of all, down here in the Gulf Coast, refineries reduced crude runs, and that really helped to avoid oversupply of gasoline getting stuck in the wrong region. By the way, we also increased crude and gasoline exports down here, crude exports up to more than 3 million barrels per day last week by our count, which helped to clear out the crude market. But when it comes to gasoline transportation, you know, we do have that other pipeline from the Gulf Coast to the southeastern markets plantation, which was pretty fully utilized to deliver uh, product to those disrupted areas. And then you had the federal government come in with these uh, targeted specific waivers of the rule that prevents foreign-owned tankers from moving product between U.S. ports. So all in all, it was a balanced response that alleviated a lot of the market's concern. Yeah, do you, but, do you, you know, we talk about inventory levels, Clay. Do you see the path of least resistance for oil still higher, given demand is coming roaring back around the country? It, you know, investments in oil fields in the U.S. are simply not there, or are we headed back down to the mid-40s? Well, we've said all along that the, uh, you know, the pace of the oil price recovery is really going to depend on the pandemic response and how fast uh, consumers and businesses get back to work. We were just seeing that earlier in your last segment, for example, in London with restrictions easing. Uh, things are certainly getting better here and people are getting back to work and moving back to the office. So that, you know, on net net is probably bullish for oil prices from here. How's traffic in Houston? How's the 610, Clay? <laughs> I got to tell you, traffic in Houston, as usual, is pretty uh, stagnant. And if you and Steve are planning on getting back to Vienna, please save a place for me. I'm ready to go. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we will meet again in Vienna, uh, hopefully at the December big sort of festival. Clay Siegel of Vortex. So, by the way, one of the few guys that has actually been to an OPEC meeting, which is why we throw him on, because he knows what he's talking about. Clay, thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you there or in Houston. We'll see. Who knows? Houston's a little closer. Thanks, Brian. All right, coming up. Uh, you're welcome. This morning's big money movers, including two media stocks, you got to watch. Are we on deck for what would be the biggest media deal in decades and basically completely unwind the entire legacy of the previous AT&T CEO, who, by the way, made tens of millions of dollars. We're back after this. Dow Futures off 80. I normally give you three big money movers, but not today because we've just got one big money mover and maybe the biggest deal in media in years, if not more than a decade. AT&T reportedly close to a deal as soon as possible to combine its media assets like HBO and CNN with Discovery Channel. Basically unwind years of building up that business and what would be a complete reversal of its media strategies. Get more now on this and welcome in CNBC.com reporter Alex Sherman who helped break big parts of this deal over the weekend. Great work, Alex, really uh, busting your hump on a Sunday night to bring us new details. What can you tell us right now? How likely is this deal? It's very likely, uh, and and it's it's going to happen soon, um, potentially even within the next hour. Uh, So CNBC uh, watchers of this should stay tuned for the details. You mentioned it was probably the biggest deal in a decade. Well, the last time uh, a, a deal like this happened, it was AT&T buying Time Warner. That deal was for $85 billion in equity. And the deal before that in this sector that was arguably, well, at least one of the largest, was AT&T buying DirecTV, which was for about $60 billion with debt in 2014. Now both of those transactions have basically been unwound by AT&T CEO wow. John Key, who was, by the way, instrumental in buying both of those businesses. So it is a remarkable but, face. But Alex, he was John Stanky was not the CEO at the time. And I, and I want to make this very clear to our viewers. AT&T spent years and tens of billions of dollars racking up huge debt while the CEO then, Randall Stevenson, made tens of millions of dollars himself building these things up. And in less than a year, his former number two, now the CEO, has basically said, oh, yeah, we're going to unwind all of that. Everything that you spent doing, former CEO, we're just going to undo while, again, everyone internally made tens of millions. I'm all for people getting paid. I'm just saying the reversal in this strategy, Alex, is shocking. It will be very interesting to hear from John Stanky uh, today or in the days to come about the why behind why he decided now was the right time to do this and also about why AT&T bought Time Warner initially. Because if you go back a few years, I wrote a story about this in December, and listen to what Randall Stevenson said when AT&T bought Time Warner. It's a bunch of word salad that never really panned out. I mean, it's about finding the content assets with the mobility and making this new thing that will enhance both. None of that panned out. And John Stanky realized that. This is, in essence, saying there is no reason for your phone company to own your content company. We'll see, however, if there's more nuance to that later today. Yeah, and by the way, five years ago, AT&T was a $40 stock. Today, it's a 
$32 stock. Look at here on my, on my, my CNBC.com. I mean, all that money and debt they built up in years of, well, this is going to work out while, while enriching themselves mightily, now unwinding. And all right, enough on that, Alex. How about the other side? Why does Discovery, David Zaslov, why does Discovery want this? Rachel and Ross? Right. So look, it's a coup for David Zaslav, who goes from running Discovery, which was obviously not at scale in the broader streaming wars. That's what this deal is all about from the Discovery side and also the Warner Media side, not the AT&T side. But it's how do we put our forces together to better compete against Netflix and Amazon Prime Video and Disney and the other forces that are out there that are all now going direct to consumer to compete for your dollar. So the thinking is we've got HBO. We've got this kind of new original content. Let's combine it with something that's always been the HBO Max strategy. HBO plus so much more is a lot of so much more. Well, we got to go. Alex, why does it seem like every giant media deal somehow involves Time or Time Warner or Warner? Something with a Time or a Warner. We've been here before. It's the gift that keeps on giving. 20 years and counting. I, I just keeps getting moved around, you know, like like the whatever. I mean, Alex Sherman, uh, great reporting there on a potential deal that could break within the hour. Massive stuff there. AT&T will, will be a phone company again. Alex, thank you very much. All right, could be a huge deal there. All right, as we head to break, reminder that May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. All month long, we're spotlighting some of our friends and CNBC family and here is our friend, CNBC's own Eunice Yoon. Growing up, I remember my mom always thinking about finances in terms of tuition and school fees. Education and Asian culture is seen as a key to success, and maybe more so in the Asian American community where people are cut off from old business relationships when moving to the United States. That intense focus on education and work ethic, coupled with the American idea of self-generated success, shaped who I am today. Time now for your morning RBI. Today's most random but interesting thing has to do with housing, because later on this morning, we get an important reading on housing, the unfortunately named NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Market Index. Whatever the name, housing has never been hotter. That's not TV hyperbole. Look at this 30-year chart of that index. We had a big few months in 1998. Remember that? Boom. Look at that. We had another go-round in the, in the go-go days of around 2005. Look at that. But neither of those readings are anywhere close to where we are right now. Listen to this. Today, that housing index expected to come in with a reading above 80, meaning very, very strong. If it does, it would be the 10th month in a row we have seen a number above 80. And here's the big RBI on that. 10 months in a row above 80 would be two months more than every other reading at or above 80 in history combined. Yes, there's only been eight other months in total in 30 years above a reading of 80, and now we are looking at potentially 10 in a row. Housing is not hot. It's whatever word above hot you would like to use. Random, but interesting, and maybe expensive. All right, let's get back down to the markets. Joining us is Bowersock Capital Partners founder, Emily Bowersock. Hill. Emily, thank you for joining us. Uh, you just heard the RBI on residential housing. I know you're a fan of certain, not all, certain real estate investment trusts. What's your overall view on REITs and real estate? 
Well, overall, over the long term, I think public REITs, especially global REITs, international REITs, are uh, going to give us the best return opportunities over the next five years. I question why the Fed is still, after we're seeing the kind of housing crunch we are, buying $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities. So I hope they know what they're doing. Yeah, we, we, Emily, we all do. Uh, you were quoted <laughs> in Barron's over the week. So, by the way, perfect timing to have you on. I'm flipping through Barron's. I'm like, hey, she's on the show tomorrow. Uh, you know, we're reading through it. And you're basically like, now's the time to take some profits, rebalance portfolio. All right. So you're, you're saying sell certain things, raise some money and put it elsewhere. Where? Yes. I like boring large cap value stocks, <laughs> especially boring international large cap value stocks. As I think I said the last time you and I talked, I think there is a bubble that's forming if it's not already formed in these exciting tech growth stories. So, yes, time to make your portfolio a little less exciting. Listen, boring is great. By, by the way, boring is sexy <laughs> if you're not losing money, right? Losing money is is not is the opposite of boring. It's scary. So... What looks solid to you? It sounds like, Emily, you're calling for volatility, a little fear, maybe some dumping of certain things. Where is it? Where is the, the safe haven, if you will, which, by the way, is, a, is an oxymoron, safe haven? Well, in addition to global REITs, we like global infrastructure plays. So companies that are, you know, running toll roads, airports, construction, you know, these are companies that are potentially relatively slow growing, but they have the ability to increase prices when needed. Uh, so we're talking about the large cap value, mid cap value part of the market, and especially companies outside the U.S. Uh, that are going to give you exposure to currencies, to non-dollar currencies. Yeah, and maybe also be the recipients of tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in a global push for infrastructure spending just per chance to dream. Emily Bowersock Hill. Emily, we appreciate you coming on. Quoted in Barron's well over the weekend. Somehow it all works out in television. Emily, we'll see you soon. Thank you. And with that, we wrap up a Monday Worldwide Exchange. Dow Futures down 72. It's a huge day. It's a huge week. Potentially the biggest media merger in years. Squawk of the gang will pick up the coverage next. We will see you tomorrow. A reminder, download our podcast if you haven't already. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.